If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we're going to be, if you're, if you're using a pew Bible provided for you, page 955. Uh, if you remember, as we took a break from, uh, from our 1 Corinthians series at the beginning of the year, uh, we, took a, we took a couple weeks to talk about seeking the kingdom of God, seeking Christ above all else. And we're going to repeatedly see this same theme, seeking Christ, finding our, our satisfaction and sufficiency in Him, and, and, and looking to that eternal kingdom. We're going to see that theme over and over again. And I want to ask you, as we look this morning at the beginning part of, of 1 Corinthians 7, what are you living for today? A repeated question, a repeated theme um, that, that we've talked about a lot this year. What are you striving for? To put it another way, what do you think will make your life complete if you just had it? See, the key word I want, I want us to think of today the key word I want us to think of for the next several weeks as we look at, at 1 Corinthians 7 specifically is the word seek. What are you seeking for? What are you looking for? When we think of that word seek, uh, one, one scripture passage uh, comes to mind regarding this topic of seeking something that is of utmost importance. And it has to do with Jesus' parable about the insurmountable worth of the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says that is an earthly comparison as to how valuable seeking the kingdom of God above all else is. This this. this kind of word picture idea that a man, he, he, he digs in the ground and he finds a treasure in a field and he realizes the, the great worth of this treasure and he quickly looks around, nobody's there, he, he, bear, he puts all the dirt in the, back on the, uh, in the hole that he just made and he goes out and says, hey, how much do you want for that field? Knowing that what he is spending is so much less than the worth of that field. I mean, think about it. That, that's, that's why uh, in, in today's, in, in today's uh, uh, day and age, here, here in Tioga County, so many people will say, I'll sell the land, but I'm keeping the gas rights. I'm keeping the mineral rights. Why? Because that makes the land so much more valuable that you want to keep that part of it. Well, nobody knew about this treasure. Another example that, that I think of is, uh, 
going to Walmart with the kids. I remember, um, you know, they maybe forgot their their uh, money at home or something, and they would see something on the shelf that they would like, and there was only one thing left. You guys know where I'm headed with this. And you know what they would do? They would take that one thing, and they would hide it somewhere in the toy section, and they would say, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get it. Now, sometimes the workers would outdo them and they would come to the place that they hid it and it was gone. Um, So it didn't always work, but you you get the idea, don't you? The insurmountable worth of the kingdom of God. Uh, What are you seeking today? Because if you are seeking anything above God and His kingdom, it is far less, of far less value. I mean, what focus, what determination, what singleness of mind do we see in this man who realizes the true value of God's kingdom? Well, to put this into the context of 1 Corinthians 7, we'll talk about this in weeks to come. Verse 17 And we're going to again see it's repeated in verse 20. It's repeated in verse 24. Verse 17, though, is uh, in the theme that's in that verse is the main theme of chapter 7. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Doesn't matter what church you're a part of, if you are a part of God's kingdom, if you are a citizen in God's kingdom, if you are a follower of Jesus, our ultimate calling is to live according to the calling that God has given us. And as we're going to see over the next several weeks, that calling is to seek Christ and His kingdom above everything else in this world that is priority number one no matter if you are seven and a follower of jesus or 77 that number one priority never stops we're to be content where god has placed us and we are to seek him and that contentment that focus that we read of here it colors this entire passage In fact, it colors uh, the entire Bible that we seek Christ above all else and realize that we can be content no matter where we are in life with this worthy objective, seeking Christ. You see, God calls us to different situations in life, not simply to make life harder on us, but He calls us to different situations in life to enable us to pursue Christ more. Going through a deep valley today that you wish would be gone, guess what God's goal is? To draw you closer to Himself, to realize the inadequacy of self, and to seek Him more. No matter what situation in life you are. Now this morning... In the first six verses of chapter 7, we're going to focus our attention on the call to seek 
Christ above all else in the home. I mean, we can be a lot of different things in public when people's eyes are on us, but the true tale sign of who you are is who you are in the home, isn't it? You can't fool your spouse. You can't fool your parents. You can't fool your siblings or whoever it is that's living with you because they are around you 24-7. How are we to seek Christ in the home? To put it more specifically, chapter 7 addresses how are we to seek Christ in the home in its relationship with how are we to view marriage? How are we to view sex? How are we to view singleness? How are we to view our gospel witness in the home? Chapter 7, by God's grace, helps us in this. So this week and next week, we are going to look at verses 1 to 16. This morning, we're only looking at the first six verses here. But as we look at this first half of chapter 7 over the next two weeks, under this category of seeking Christ in the home, and then in in verses 17 to 40, we're going to look at seeking Christ in all of life. But seeking Christ specifically in the home we are going to be looking over the next two weeks that seeking Christ in the home means having, number one, what we're going to look at today, a proper view of sex. And then number two, we're going to look at next week, a proper view of singleness. And then number three, a proper proper view of the marriage covenant itself. And all of this is under the banner that we must cling to what truly matters. Let's open up before we get into the text and let's let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I pray as we talk about this often sensitive topic of sex, that you would guide us. Lord, this is a topic that uh, is not addressed many times from the pulpit. But Lord, what a crucial topic this is. Lord, there is no lack of what your word says regarding a biblical view of sex, and specifically a biblical view of sex in marriage. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us our hearts. Lord, I pray that where there are areas of of damage uh, within the home regarding this topic, Lord, that you would begin to produce healing, that you would begin to produce communication, that you would begin to to implement into our homes what you have designed in a proper way. And Lord, I just ask that you would guide us, that you would teach us from the Scriptures. Lord, the things that I say, Lord, that are not true to Scripture, that, that those things would... Uh, We would be forgetful of those things, but that the Holy Spirit would continually bring to mind the truths that are in accordance with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are going to look at a proper 
view of sex. Uh, many times, we, like the Corinthians, we like to, di- to make a contrast to divvy up our spiritual life to this area, this area, this area. But we see here that all of life is interconnected with our spiritual life. Nothing is, is outside of our relationship with Christ and what He cares about for us. So we are going to look this morning at a proper view of sex. And I'm going to just give you um, three main points under this from verses 1 to 6. And, and, and we're going to unpack these. I'll give them to you now uh, just in advance. But number one, we're going to talk about the first two verses show us that sex is confined to marriage. You're going to say, well, uh, that's maybe a no-brainer, but there's some things in here that maybe we need to think a little bit more uh, deeply about. Uh, number two, uh, sex is a gift from God. We see that in verses three and four. And then uh, we're going to close this morning looking at verses five and six that, that sex within marriage is not to be avoided. It's not to be put on the back burner as less important than everything else we have going on in life. So let's look, first of all, sex is confined to marriage. What's the issue at stake? Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. If we just stop there, this is a vital issue. Concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, Paul is here, is obviously responding to a letter that the Corinthians themselves wrote to Paul. So this was something that was on their mind. This was something that was troubling uh, the local church and the members in the local church. Uh, This week I texted Mike. Uh, Mike is now kind of in our scripture rotation uh, for um, our scripture reading. And I said, Mike, you got a good passage to start out on. <laughs> that, that again, it is kind of an awkward thing to talk about. It's an awkward thing to, to read about from scripture, but it is so vital. And we know it's so vital because we have seen now, just from this phrase concerning the matters about which you wrote, that this is an issue that Christians struggle with, right? may not be com- comfortable to talk about all the time, but it is an issue. It is a vital issue. And Paul, throughout the book, is going to be talking about things that the Corinthians addressed that were issues within the church that they wrote him about. Of course, we've already seen that Paul says, hey, there's some things you're not even aware of that you need to deal with. But he's also going to deal with things that they are aware of, and this is one of them. He's also going to talk in chapter 7 and verse 25, we'll get to that. He talks about now concerning the betrothed or the virgins. Uh, he's going to, uh, there was a question about that. And Pastor Dennis is going to talk in chapter 8. He says concerning food offered to idols. In chapter 12, there was a question about spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, uh, what we, I preached about uh, at the beginning of the year, this offering for the church. So Paul is systematically addressing concerns that the church had. And this was one of them. And maybe today you find that it is a concern on your own mind. Now here, the, the, the issue was a vital issue, but the church, 
they, 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 uh, some of the members in the church were struggling with a misconception regarding sex and marriage. Once again, in verse 1, you, you see that there are quotes around that sentence, right? In other words, this is not Paul's words. This is Paul quoting the Corinthians. It says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. How many of times have you heard uh, preaching that this is Paul's words? Um, you, hear, you hear that? Th- th- this is a quotation from the Corinthians letter that Paul is seeking to correct. Now, if you have a King James Bible or a new King James Bible, it says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I heard a lot of preaching in youth group uh, about, you know, you don't touch a woman because Paul said it right there in verse 1. Uh, you do have to be careful about how you touch someone of the opposite sex, but please don't use that, that verse with your kids. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That word touch, uh, if, if your translation says touch, it, it does have the idea of sec, a sexual relationship not simply a touch, okay? Now, what were the Corinthian church, what was their confusion? There's some discussion that it it meant one of two things. It could mean the way that that word um, have sexual relations or touch was used in the first century, it could have the idea of sex for the sake of pleasure. That there was a distorted view that some in the church were saying you only have sex for procreation to have children. And and, and Paul is going to address that if that is your viewpoint, that is going to cause you to be tempted um, outside of just trying to have children. And of course, we're going to talk about this more, but in Roman culture, you remember I shared last week that the common kind of thing of the day was you have sex to have children with your spouse if you're a man, and then for pleasure you go outside of marriage uh, to, to uh, prostitutes, to, to whatever, and that's where you, you go to have pleasure. And, and it was a very immoral, distorted viewpoint. So, it, so some individuals say this is what Paul is talking about. The second viewpoint is that um, sex was to completely be avoided. It is good for a man not to have any sexual relations. So uh, this group would obviously be, be in contrast to what we talked about last week uh, in verses 12 to 20 of chapter 6, individuals that said, man, it doesn't matter what you do sexually because, you know, just like food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Man, you just, you live it up and the physical doesn't impact the spiritual, so just do whatever you want. All things are lawful. Now, whatever, whatever um, specifically Paul is saying uh, in, in the first century here, uh, the implications are really the same for us. The issue at stake is this. How do we view sex? How do we view sex? 
There's a, this is a huge issue in marriage. This is a huge issue, as we will see, uh, in singleness. That there was a distorted view of sex that some were saying, and more than likely, uh, the most obvious reading here is that there, was, there were people saying that, that sex should be totally abstained from even in the, the marriage relationship. And Paul seeks to correct this. That it is, yes, it's good to not be immoral outside of marriage, but God has designed sex. This is God's idea, not man's idea. So there's an issue at stake here, but, but verse 2 also shows us that, that this, how we view sex really has to be focused upon as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, because there is a real issue of temptation here. What does verse 2 say? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. This is a real deal temptation. And we know this. I mean, how many times have we heard about people that fall into sexual immorality? In chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul says, but, I'm, I am, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. That, and he lists other sins, but starts with sexual immorality, that the church was to address this as a congregation and, 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 and put this person outside of the church. That was an unrepentant sexual immorality. This was a real deal issue. Again, in, in, uh, uh, in chapter 6 and verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. And it, and it goes on in the list. And then we've just talked about verses 12 to 20 and what Paul has to say. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, what is the answer here? Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now what Paul is saying here is marriage is a parameter to what is appropriate sexually. This doesn't say, hey, are you, are you, uh, uh, are you single this morning? And man, you have desires. What you need to do is as soon as possible, go find yourself a husband. Go find yourself a wife. This is not what the verse is saying. This, this, uh, each man should have his own wife. Have there has the idea not of simply being married, but the idea of having a sexual relationship with your spouse. So marriage is the parameter in which sex is to take place. And of course we know that Satan has been doing the reverse of God's design ever since the beginning of creation, right? What did he, what did he say to Adam and Eve? 
Well, you need to take that fruit because then you will be as God. And by eating that fruit, they did place themselves at the same level of God. God's design, though, was that Adam and Eve were God's representatives, not God himself. God reverse, or Satan reverses the plan. We see that sex, is a, is, as we'll talk about, is a gift from God. And what does, what does Satan do? Sex is, is something that you should uh, avail yourself of no matter what. And even if you don't have someone to have a sexual relationship with, man, go to the computer, uh, 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 go uh, read novels, do all of that stuff. And that is of Satan. You see, marriage is the parameter to sex. And you know what we really see when we see that, that God has given sex to a husband and a wife, we see that sex is a blessing by God to be enjoyed in marriage. So many times we, we, we put the negative spin on it. Don't have sex until you're married. And we preach that to our children. And what we fail to preach is what sex was created for. And the blessing that that is in its proper place and proper timing when enjoyed by the gift giver. I like what uh, one, one commentator says. and Listen to this. Because this is going to impact what we are going to continue reading about. Uh, this individual says this. It is dangerous to pursue sex outside of marriage. And it is dangerous not to enjoy sex inside of marriage regularly. It is dangerous to pursue sex outside of marriage, and it is dangerous not to enjoy sex inside of marriage regularly. See, many times as couples... Sex is put on the back burner, and boy, how dare a spouse get on the computer, or how dare a spouse have a relationship outside of marriage. But in many ways, if we're not careful, we can be setting ourselves up for that precedent to happen. You see, the kingdom of this world works on a different moral map than the kingdom of God, and, and we have to refuse to be deceived here. We have to refuse to be deceived when we think of, 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 the, of sex, refuse to be deceived that it's a free-for-all, and then we also have to refuse to be deceived to think that sex is not important. Those are both extremes. So that leads us to number two. Number one, sex is confined to marriage. And if it's confined to marriage... Is it a priority in your marriage? I mean, uh, you and your spouse, if you're married today, uh, the, only, uh, the only way you can partake of this relationship is, is you and your spouse. So are you prioritizing that? Because unlike... You know, you cook a, 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 a lousy meal, um, a man or wife, because men and women cook. You know what? You can go and legitimately go through the fast food. 
and you can eat that double cheeseburger. But man, you better not do that in the sexual realm. We have to prioritize sex if sex is confined to marriage. But then we see verses 3 and 4, and this helps us to, 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 to put into context sex being confined to marriage. Number two, sex is a gift from God. Sex is a gift from God. Notice in verse 3 it says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Boy, these verses can be, can be used and abused, can't they? In an unlimited uh, a number of circumstances. But what we have to see from verses 3 to 4 is that sex is a gift from God and it is a mutual gift. It is a mutual gift. Now sometimes, uh, and we live in a broken world, and just like in any area of marriage, uh, there's difficulties and there's trials, there's ups, there's downs. I mean, can you name a single area of your marriage where that's not true? The same thing's going to be true in sex. Is sex a gift from God? Sure it is. Does that exempt it from problems? No, not at all. I mean, th think of this analogy. I, this came to my mind yesterday. Um, that the idea that, that sex being a gift of God does not exempt struggle in, in the sexual realm as a couple. Um, we would all say children are a gift of God, right? Do I need to go any further? <laughs> Do we not face deep struggles through the years in raising our children? But would we ever, okay, would we ever legitimately mean it if we said, I'm wondering if this child's a gift from God? I mean, we, we don't do, I mean, you know, we all have our low moments, but, but, but we, we, we would never say children are not a gift from God. Um, the greatest gift that, that God has given Rachel and I are our four children. But man, do we struggle at times and in situations and you do too but that does not mean that they are not a gift from God so let's not use the excuse of man sometimes it gets confusing and sometimes we're hitting this brick wall and you know what let's fail to see that sex is divine a divine gift from God we can't do that You see, this is a mutual gift, not simply to the man, not simply to the woman, but to both. And in this divine gift are mutual rights. Look at verse 3 again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Uh, and I want to stop there and note the order here because the order is very important. Notice that the wife is listed first. You know, sometimes in our culture, um, you know, we, we can come across with the idea is that sex is simply for men. And, and that's not what Scripture teaches. I mean, Paul, in order to really emphasize this point, he first addresses the woman. That the woman is important 
in the marriage in general, but also in this marital act. This was totally contrary to Roman culture. The woman was looked upon as not important as the man. Did you know many people in today's culture, uh, they have a problem like in Ephesians 5 when um, it says that wives need to submit to their husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. And they think, how dare the Bible say that wives should submit to their husbands? Did you know that in the first century, in kind of the moral codes and uh, with, with the, with the uh, Greek philosophers, that men weren't even mentioned many times as having a part in how they were to treat their wives. That it was almost looked upon as, as uh, you know, taking it for granted. The fact that Paul lists both men and women with responsibilities heightens the importance of the wife. So rather than than looking at Scripture restricting women, Scripture highlights women, puts them on a high pedestal. In fact, uh, listen to this regarding Roman culture. uh, One person says this, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. To have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and of the demi, or a, that's a, su- a suburb of Athens, and to betroth the daughters to husbands as one's own. So in other words, the wife gives kids, and then the husband you know, takes the kids, gives the women off in marriage, uh, introduces the sons to, to, to the social order. And then it says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. How do you like that concept? And here Paul is saying the woman is to be given her due honor. You see, sex is just as much for the wife as it is for the husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the husband to the wife to her husband. And then look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Not only are there mutual rights here that, that both partners should, should be fulfilled sexually, but also there's an idea of mutual ownership. And, and, and here's where uh, many times, just like submission can get distorted into do whatever I say, you know that you're not living out the truth of this verse when you say, hey, wife, your body's mine. And I, I'm not going to go on. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's kind of comical when you talk about it, but it's not comical because it is a reality in many marriages. But we have to, to, in order to put verse 4 in its proper context, um, there's two truths here. Number one, 
This idea of, of ownership is, number one, mutual. And it's mutual in the idea that this verse 4 has to be seen in the context of love and respect, not abuse, manipulation, or selfishness. This is the proper context that verse 4 is placed in. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, how, uh, how can you prove that? Well, what about Ephesians 5, verse 28 and 29? Paul writes this to husbands. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So if the wife, according to verse 4, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, this is, uh, and then likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, uh, specifically here, we see uh, in, in Ephesians 5 regarding husbands, that if the husband is to love his wife as his own body, man, what does that say about verse 4? That this is in a context of love and respect, uh, not abuse or manipulation or selfishness. But number two, this verse four has to be seen in the context of security in relationship. That both the husband and the wife are secure in one another's love. That, you know what, my husband, my wife is not simply just wanting to use me. And then, and then, you know, they'll ignore me until the next time that they want to have sex. The Song of Solomon, uh, Pastor Dennis preached on this in the summertime. But the Song of Solomon is so key to our understanding of this idea Song of Solomon, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, the wife says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. You see that mutual ownership in the context of security and relationship. That there is a desire to be your spouse's. Be, why? Because they're good looking? You know, good looks, that might attract you to your spouse, but it's not going to keep you to your spouse. Because they cook great meals, well, that might attract you to your spouse as well, but that's not going to keep you. Because there is a mutual love. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 16 of Song of Songs, my beloved is mine and I am his. She says again in chapter 7 and verse 10, I am my beloved's and, my, and his desire is for me. That's just not talking simply about a sexual desire. That's talking about a desire to lavish his love in every area upon her that she is precious in his sight. And that's where many times I think we can get off as, as spouses if you're married. Does your spouse start to lose value, preciousness in your eyes um, uh, compared to everything else going on in life because your spouse can sense that? Rachel and I have had talks about that. Boy, it's like we're two ships passing in the night because of the demands of life. 
And what happens is that security in relationships starts to diminish. And then you wonder why that sexual relationship begins to diminish. So sex is to be confined to marriage. It is God's good gift. So if this is something that God has just given you and your spouse not to be enjoyed with anyone else, how well are you cherishing it? And then number two, we have seen that sex is that gift from God. We have to view it in the right context. That would then lead us to close out verses 5 and 6 to say this. If, if, if A and B are true, then that means C, sex is not to be avoided within marriage. Now there are individuals that... that can many times say it has been years since we, have, um, since we have had a sexual relationship. And that is not the way God designed it. That is not just something of an optional choice for a couple. Look what verse 5 says. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. Sex is not to be avoided within a marriage. And, 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 and we don't have time in, in, in a Sunday morning sermon to get into all the, the, the individual circumstances. That's one of the reasons God has given us one another. He's given us uh, 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 biblical counselors to be able to seek um, but, but the main principle that is true is that sex is not to be avoided within marriage. And many times when difficulties come, sometimes after being married years and years uh, to your spouse and, 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 and there continues to be difficulty, it's sometimes uh, on, the, on the immediate side of things, it's just simply to ignore this aspect of your relationship. But the Bible shows us in verse 5 that if sex is avoided, it is first of all to be only for a purposeful, mutual period of time. Again, in verse 4, Paul's talking about, in verse 3, the mutuality of this relationship. And, and now in verse 5, if you are not involved in this relationship with your spouse, again, it's, it's to be um, limited and a mutual decision. Not a decision that... I make as the husband or I make as the wife to the, to the chagrin of my spouse. A purposeful mutual period of time. And in this case, in verse 5, he says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. This word, um, uh, do not deprive, it's the idea of, of defrauding. In fact, we see this used uh, at six other times in the New Testament, this word defraud. And in, in Mark 10, Jesus is giving us a summary of the Ten Commandments. And, and the verse is on this, will, uh, will be on the screen for you. It should be. Um, uh, Jesus says, uh, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not stale, steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. That's the word we have here uh, in 1 Corinthians. 
uh, in verse 5. This word is used just a chapter earlier in chapter 6 in verse 7 and 8 when it talks about the two guys that were going to court. You remember that? And he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves do wrong and defraud. You see, if, if, this, if this decision uh, for the avoidance of sex is, is not based on a limited amount of time and it's not mutual, uh, the Scriptures talks about uh, literally defrauding your spouse. Holding back something from them that is rightfully theirs. The key word here is a limited time. It's for a limited time. You think of, uh, Paul mentions prayer, you think the same idea of fasting. Um, it is a, a, a spiritual discipline, and, and, and it is, you know, we kind of, and even in my own life, have kind of, you know, we overlook this idea of fasting. Um, but the Bible repeatedly talks about fasting, of taking time away to specifically pray to the Lord, to specifically commune with Him, and saying, you know what, this is so important that I'm going to temporarily defraud myself of food for the sake of seeking God. Now, there are health situations where that's not a good idea to do. Uh, you, can, you can fast from any number of things to put God, uh, a, to have a focused, concentrated time with God. But the idea is, if you're fasting from food, you've got to come back to it, right? I mean, you can't just... Jesus went 40 days without food in the desert. And, and uh, that in and of itself was, uh, was quite a feat. But even Jesus in his human body had to, to eat. So this is talking about a limited time. Now, I want to give you some principles regarding this. Because there are situations, right? I mean, there, there's health situations that come up that make that, that, that physical relationship maybe not a possibility. There's, there's past abuse that, that makes that a difficulty uh, for a couple. There's any number of circumstances. Remember, we live in a broken world where the sexual relationship is a struggle for a couple and there may well be times that, that there needs to be mutual decision of, of avoiding the sexual relationship, and it may even be more than just limited to prayer or fasting, but yet I think the Scriptures give us a helpful key framework in how to view that. Some key principles, and really just two, that Christ must be at the center of this limited duration of avoiding the physical relationship. Christ has to be at the center of it. That's why Paul mentions specifically here prayer. It is not engaging in the sexual relationship. Is it really rooted in selfishness on my part? That you know what? I feel like I'm being defrauded, so I'm going to defraud. Or you know what? Life is just so busy that we just got to put this on the back burner and just deal with it, hubby, or deal with it, wife. 
And of course, there are seasons of life where, where, where um, not as much devotion of time can be put to this. But again, that key word is limited. There has to be the priority of coming together as a couple. So Christ has to be at the center of this limited duration. And as Jesus says, honor others above yourself, that, that this is a mutual, a mutual Christ at the center decision that for this season there needs to be avoidance. Second key principle I think that Paul gives us with this word deprive is that we have to distinguish defrauding versus working through an issue. We have to distinguish that this, this word defrauding our spouse versus we're working through something. You know, working through something is, is, is honey, you know, I want to... I want to um, uh, I want this to be a part of our relationship, but what can we do in working through whatever the struggle is, whether it's past abuse, whether it's, it's uh, um, uh, uh, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. What can we do to make this a priority yet realize that we are working through issues? And, and that's the wisdom of God in applying this, the, uh, this to, to your marriage, to your life. That's where uh, others speaking truth are, are helpful. So we see the principle here that, that this duration is to be limited. Because notice it says at the end of verse 5, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we see that sex is not to be avoided because we see that, that, that it's to have a, uh, if there is avoidance, it's for a purposeful, mutual period of time. But then also, we see at the end of verse 5, sex is the normal pattern of married life, that this is going on uh, in the relationship. Paul says, but then come together again. That is what the, the blueprint is for marriage. Then we see uh, one of the purposes here, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control, self-control. This is a guard against temptation. Now notice in verse 6, Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Uh, many people tie verse 6 into what Paul's going to say in verse 7. Um, but more than likely, Paul, the, the this that Paul is talking about, uh, as a concession I say this, is more than likely what he has just said in verse 5. In other words, you do not need to say, hey, we are going to separate, uh, to avoid the sexual relationship for a period of time. Paul's saying, I'm not telling you to avoid this, but I'm saying if you are going to avoid sex, it needs to be for a temporary period of time. Christ has got to be at the center of it, as we see in this, this uh, theme of prayer. So lest we walk away and say, oh, so in other words, what Paul is saying is that, that sex is really ultimately just so that I can keep my spouse. 
that they don't get tempted by somebody else. Remember that Paul is, is, is even bringing this up, saying, now this may happen, you may need to temporarily avoid this, but come back together if you do, because Satan can get a foothold through this. But he is not saying that sex is limited to simply keeping your spouse. I mean, Paul is dealing with a specific situation here. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul says, man, the, uh, like we talked about last week, the physical union of a man and a woman is ultimately a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church, that we are one with Christ. So let us not devalue God's good gift of sex. It's one of those things that because it's private, it's something that we often don't talk about or overlook in the church. But God has designed sex as a gift, and God has designed sex in such a way that it is an ultimate expression of a husband and a wife who are living together with Christ at the center for His glory that are loving each other so well, day in and day out, that that then overflows into this sexual relationship. Are we treating our spouse, if you're married today, in such a way that that physical act, that physical union, is an expression of the love that you have for Christ first and foremost, but overflows to your spouse? Or is that act of sex simply something in your own mind that is self-serving? 